Okay, so we've got a little bit of time to see if you have anything on your mind. Um, but I, uh, I didn't invite particularly written questions, although I'm quite happy with them, because I, I'd like to kind of reduce rehearsal times. Um, but I, somebody did uh, write a question that I think would be maybe a useful place to start. And it's really, uh, <laughs> well, actually, it's some enlivening inspiration and deepening into equanimity, please. So I'll do my best. Um, it's, I mean, most of you will know the way in which equanimity um, is so interwoven with the other Brahma-viharas of, of metta, of compassion, of joy, that equanimity is often said to be the crown of all of the Brahma-viharas, the crowning quality. And interestingly, in the early texts, Equanimity is a word that's often used interchangeably with nibbana or awakening. So um, equanimity is often used as a synonym for nibbana, for liberation. And in this sense, it's really speaking about the fruition of equanimity. It's really speaking about unshakable equanimity, in which there's really a full blowing out of the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion. Now, clearly, whenever the Buddha speaks about these kind of wholesome qualities, he always speaks about path and fruition. So, Using equanimity as a synonym for nibbana is not placing it on some distant, inaccessible horizon. Because if equanimity really is about the cessation of greed, hatred, and delusion, most of us are not short of opportunities on pretty much a moment-to-moment level to really see the ways in which uh, craving and aversion or greed and hatred and delusion just simply keeps knocking us off balance. We want one thing, we don't want something else. We get caught in our likes, we get caught in our dislikes. We move towards, we move away from. And this can be in relationship to a sound, a sight, a thought, a body sensation just to track the mind in a single day, you, you see this kind of, almost like this pendulum-type effect of leaning towards one thing, leaning away from another thing, or just simply not knowing what's going on and floundering. And this is, of course, the exertion of the power of greed, hatred, and delusion to different degrees in the power that it actually holds in our minds to form certain relationships with whatever is taking place. Now, when the Buddha speaks about blowing out the fires of greed, hatred, and delusion, clearly he's really speaking about a development of an understanding, a development of insight. 
Because in that pendulum kind of existence of being for this and against this, wanting and not wanting, there's a whole subtext in that, isn't there? Because the, the subtext is actually investing into the object, whether it's a sight or a sound or lunch or a body sensation or an event or an experience. What it is, is it's investing into the object, of course, that implicit power to make us happy or unhappy. That's the delusion part. So equanimity, in a way, is really a withdrawal of that kind of investment. It's a withdrawal of that kind of projection. And that is actually what allows the mind, the heart, to come to this place of uprightness, this place of unshakability, but also a place, it's not a remote place. You know, equanimity doesn't imply not caring. Equanimity doesn't imply indifference. Instead, equanimity really implies that uh, capacity to be equally near to all things. But in that being equally near to all things, it is not investing the reality into all those things of the power to really shape our heart and mind in any moment. Now, as a, as a practice, um, upeka or equanimity, I think really does, um, well, again, it's something that is cultivated in, in the context of our lives. And you know, I think of, of several primary areas. Um, you know, certainly one area where equanimity is the most challenging um, is in the area of human relationship and human uh, contact. The places where, for many people, that sense of being knocked off balance arises so profoundly. And uh, some of you will know uh, the Sri Lankan translation of the equanimity phrases that are often incorporated into equanimity practice that say, you know, life is a play of joy and sorrow. May I remain unshaken by life's rise and fall. You are the parent of your acts and their consequences. I care for you deeply, but sadly I cannot protect you from distress. So equanimity has certainly that, it's it's imbued with the qualities of, of metta and compassion. But equanimity is also a way of recognizing our inability to entirely control the world of conditions or to control the ways of another person's mind and heart, no matter how much we care about them. In that sense, equanimity is recognizing, just as none of us would be likely to believe that another person in our life, no matter how much they care for us, has the capacity to to make us happy, to remove sadness from our life. Um, So, too, we we are limited in our capacity to, to control the ways of another person's mind and heart. 
The more traditional context in which equanimity is spoken about is in terms of what is called, often in the Buddhist teaching, the, the worldly winds. Praise and blame, success and failure, gain and loss, pleasure and pain, parts of all of our lived experience. And again, places where we, we see ourselves in that kind of pendulum ac- action in the midst of those conditions of hoarding praise and fearing blame, of you know pursuing pleasure and avoiding pain, of feeling elated with gain and, and, and somehow despairing over losses. And these are not just big life events. These are often really moment-to-moment actualities um, that you see in a single day of practice, don't you? Plain, pleasure, gain, loss, success, failure. You know, you, you just see that even in the space of a single sitting and, and, or a single walking and, and you can see the, the mind's reactivity to that, how it's desperately trying to only have one, one swing of the pendulum, only wanting the pleasure, the success, the gain, the, the, the fame, and really fearing the other. But again, e- even within that, we see how, you know, like one swing of the pendulum seems to really kind of reinforce and solidify the good me, you know, the me I want to have, you know, the pleasant me, the successful me, the praised me, you know. Um, and, and I really don't want to have that other me, you know, the painful me, the kind of loser, you know, the, uh, the, the, the one who's failed. And how, again, even in that, we, we see the kind of play of selfing within those swings as much as we see the ways in which we're positing, you know, despair and elation into those extremes implicitly, you know, that if I have pleasure, I'm going to be happy, I'm going to be successful, I'm going to be renowned, I'm going to be secure. If I have this, I'm going to lose it all. And so a lot of, a lot of meditative practice is really cultivating this dimension of equanimity which is really inclusive, which is not preferential in a sense. It, it, it's including every aspect of experience as it is and it doesn't matter whether it's pleasant or whether it's unpleasant. But it's really starting to find that, that middle ground of being equally near to all things. And in a way that capacity to be equally near all things is, has remarkable effects, I think. It, it takes the fear out of life. The fear that I, I can't go there, I will be devastated by this. Even though that we know that loss and, mo- and moments of pain will be part of all of our lives, we can live in that state of fear, of feeling of somehow not being able to meet that, not being able to accommodate that, which actually then sets off the reaction of a way of life that is kind of governed by, by pursuit and by craving and, and by wanting and by needing. So on, on a training level, equanimity has much to do with standing, you know, ho- holding that ground, sitting on that middle ground, 
where we're not positing into the world of conditions these powers to devastate, these powers to to uh, somehow reinforce the self we want. But we're holding that ground where actually the, the, the equanimity is in the capacity to see, to embrace, um, with kindness, with compassion, uh, with joy at times, but also with this kind of unshakability of, of the non-preferential awareness Yeah, that's about it on equanimity. <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot more I could say, but um, to think of equanimity as a practice rather than a state, I think is deeply important. To think about this as a way of being rather than a particular fixed state, which is kind of unresponsive, I think is deeply important. Okay, so does anybody have anything they want to to raise? Yes, Tina. I was listening to a talk the other night, and one of the comments was that um, in our language, in English, we tend to absolutize the relative, and that there actually are no nouns. That when you look at it from a different perspective, they're all verbs. Some things are verbing slower than others, like a mountain, but eventually it does change. And that fits in so beautifully that everything being a process rather than a fixed state. I I think it's a very strong encouragement in this teaching to move uh, our view... Uh, so the, the question was around how the English language particularly tends to make things absolute through the use of particularly overuse, well, just the way nouns predominate. Whereas actually, you know, it's a kind of misperception from the get-go because, uh, you know, the, the life is actually process. You know, life is much more in a verb form. So there is a very strong encouragement in the teaching, certainly to move the view, move our view, into the world of process and conditions rather than states, nouns, reified objects. And, you know, of course, within that now, you know, that use of that, that tendency to reify through language also is the reification of me, of I. You know, and you. So this is not just to do with you know how you know phenomena are are in a state of process, but how I am in a state of process. So and all of the ways that I define me are in actually process. The body, the mind, feeling, perceptions. You know, all of this is actually an interactive process. And I, you know, it, it's we we cannot actually change the the language we have. I mean, it's it's you know, it would be odd to uh, to function in a, in our culture um, totally in verb form. Um, but that doesn't. It, but it's really being aware of how languaging is forming view. 
and how really the big challenge of the practice is actually to shift the views that kind of solidify, reify, and move things into states. Now, you know, this is such an interesting one because in a way, uh, you know, perception tells us that a lot of things aren't in process. You know, the clock looks fairly solid. You know, I'd have to have a very long view to actually see the clock 50 years down the road in a landfill disintegrating, you know. Um, So things present the appearance of being fixed. And it's a kind of mistaken appearance. So it's a genuine contemplation of impermanence that allows us to see beyond the first appearance that, that, you know, we slap a noun or a fixity upon. This, of course, is a training in how we actually relate to the view of self and the view of other, and to turn those views into process mode is probably really very, very critical. To see the process of selfing, the process of othering, and to move out of the, the views which are basically formed by seizing upon the fragment of an experience and mistaking it to be the whole. And we see that in views of self, you know, throughout the day when we say, you know, I'm, I'm happy, I'm sad, you know, I'm, I'm despairing, I'm elated, you know, I'm sick. Uh, you know, basically what's happening in all of those descriptions is to seize upon the fragment and then to make that fragment into the whole. The I am, even though you know, ten minutes later, a different fragment will be seized upon, and equally mistaken to be the whole. And this is a kind of amnesiac nature of of identification. Of identification, it's a kind of a, the, the amnesiac nature. Amnesiac nature of it is to forget what has gone before or what will surely come after. In that season upon the fragment, it, it, it is re- it's a reification. Now, this is something that's not <coughs> doesn't only happen, of course, in terms of an internal process. But you know, you may have noticed this happening throughout the retreat. You know, where you know someone can uh, drop their salad in the dining room. You know, and they become the most mindless person ever, in my view. You know, where someone, uh, you know, maybe is having a shuffly day and they become the most agitated person ever. You know, and, and, and that view is formed by seizing upon a particular. And, it, of course, it blinds us to seeing the whole. It blinds us to seeing the process. It blinds us to seeing the conditions that allow for the arising of that in any moment. But it, it has the equal effect of amnesia, doesn't it? Because, you know, the person who had a shuffling day, I mean, I could come on a retreat with them five years later, and the moment I see them, 
I've got the fragment right in my perception. And I said, most agitated meditator ever is here again. You know, so you actually get the sense of the imprisonment of being held within those partial views that are uh, really do serve to, to reify and solidify and, and create a perception of an independent self-existence rather than being a, a, a matrix of process and conditions that will change and will, cha- will surely can only change. That, that is the thing. It's not that it may change. Things can only change. And, and you know, I remember you really do get a sense sometimes that the only thing that keeps anything at all fixed in place is my view of it. And apart from my view of it, there is nothing that is fixed in place. And that, that's kind of astounding to consider that. You know, because it really then makes me question all of my assumptions, all of my views that I can so easily have about people, about societies, about the world. I really realize the only thing that keeps anything fixed in place is my view of it. And the, and the Buddha once said, you know, in, in speaking about this, he once said, you know, to have no fixed view of self is to have no fixed view at all. So it's actually seeing that the, the kind of operative nature of reifying and solidifying and freezing self into a view that the kind of outcome of that is to superimpose that same tendency upon everything. So to have no fixed view of self is to have no fixed view at all, which is a pretty interesting kind of koan to take into our practice, to, to take into our life. Because, you know, when we listen to ourselves, <laughs> it's, it's quite astonishing, isn't it, how many fixed views can actually be entertained within one human mind. And Anybody else got anything they want to bring forward? Yes. Um, could you say something about the near, <coughs> sorry, near enemy of equanimity? So the question's about the near enemy of equanimity, and there's, there's a big, there's a good family of them. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> indifference, indifference, not caring. Um, withdrawal of, of metta, uh, a kind of coldness. I think all of that is, and, and even that can be, you know, quite disguised in Dharma language. You know, it doesn't matter, it's all empty anyway, you know, and I'll just abide in this unshakable equanimity. It, it is actually removal. It, it's a way of removing from, of abandoning Whereas I think the nature of genuine equanimity is, is engagement. It is engagement. It, it's not going into this place of, of defended, um, you know, armoring. It's always engaging. And it's never, you know, equanimity, uh, you know, as one of the Brahma Baharas, could never be 
um, separated from the qualities of metta and compassion, particularly. You know? So, you know, if that, and, and yet that kind of tendency to abandon, withdraw, is also really, you know, it doesn't have the nature of metta. It doesn't have the nature of care or compassion. And it, it's easy enough to get into the near enemies of, of equanimity in many ways. It can even feel kind of attractive, you know, to have this this sense of a, a, a kind of um, position in which we cannot be touched, in which we cannot be moved sort of emotionally and then mistake that for equanimity. So, um, Joe's question was about noticing the rhythm of his own mind in a single day of moving from a place of connectedness and contact to a kind of a dry spell of disconnection, you know, to again moving into a place where there's more connection again. So, the question, I think, is a very important question in this pathway of how much to just uh, be steady with that unfoldment and that rhythm and stay close to it and know it and how much to actually intervene. Um, and I think that's an incredibly important question, you know, because, I mean, you know, there are kind of, sometimes you, you hear teachings of, of mindfulness that, uh, you know, where it's almost become sort of cliched or almost like a commandment, you know, of just be with it. You know, don't interfere, don't intervene, you know. So that's kind of one extreme. And the other extreme is probably more within the realms of our own tendencies where we're always trying to fix the difficult and always getting agitated around states that we don't like. So we become very solution-centered, you know. I mean, personally, I really do think there is actually a middle path here. I mean, if you look at any... Any of the lists, <laughs> the Buddhist lists, you know, in terms of practice. I mean, they always start with mindfulness. You know, they always start that this is your starting point. You know, nothing changes unless we know what's going on. And so, mindfulness is always that starting point. But I think what is often underestimated is the way in which mindfulness is also part of a family. And part of the family is, uh, part of that family is wise effort and skillful effort. 
So uh, there's a need for us to, to, to know something, to, to have the capacity to stay close to the uncomfortable without immediately going into the agitated mode of how do I get rid of this and how do I fix that. But staying close to the uncomfortable, that's not necessarily the end of the story because then there is the question of how does mindfulness actually engage with wise effort. So the thing to keep an eye on in my mind would always be the, the level of agitation and the level of aversion. You know, I'm engaging with this as a means to make it go away. Now, can I have the kind of view that this could stay forever, but I'm still going to engage with it? Because I think what happens with the, you know, the, the near enemy of mindfulness used in this more stereotypical way is passivity. You know, it's going to hang out here with, with, with depression, despair, with, with anger, you know, just be with it, be with it. Be. That, that's actually not, I don't believe that's what the Buddha taught. Because he actually taught about bringing suffering and its causes to an end, you know. And um, uh, the kind of just stare of attention is not going to do that. You know, so you, you look at these other factors in the mindfulness family that include investigation, include wise effort, include cultivations. Then it's a question of how do we engage with that which has been brought quite unconditionally into the field of our mindfulness. So I know this, you know, that this is kind of flatness, or this is disconnection, or, or this is kind of a... A, a, a sort of, a, I don't know, a, a lack of aliveness. And how do I engage with that? And, you know, without any agitation of demanding a particular outcome. Okay, so, so I'm, I'm minded of, of one of the discourses when actually the Buddha is really, really recognizing, you know, the sort of intractability of some of our patterns some of the patterns that, that we experience. And, and I think people see that on retreats, you know, especially longer retreats, because, you know, once you get, once the kind of, uh, you know, the, the kind of surface layers of, you know, the hindrances start to calm down, I mean, most of us get pretty familiar with the way that our minds and hearts work, and sometimes in quite habitual ways. So anyway, the, I think the Buddha was very realistic around acknowledging this. He was a very pragmatic kind of teacher, I think. So there's this one discourse that speaks about actually practicing with the intractable and the stubborn. And, and, and it, it's very interesting, this discourse, because it does actually, it's very intervention-centered, and if I use that word quite lightly. Um, but, you know, it, it, step one, the Buddha says, you know, Mindfulness, know it, you know, and being aware that metta is part of that. Befriend it, know it, you know. This is what depression feels like, this is what anger feels like, this is what craving feels like. Know it. And then he says, if it still arises, investigate it. So really begin to unpack it, you know, take away just the kind of blanket words of anger or greed or despair. Actually, what does this feel like? How do I know this? What is its impact in the body, in the mind, in, in, in perception? You know, to really begin to investigate that quite thoroughly. Then, uh, I might not have all of these in order, by the way. And then he says, if it still arises, 
Um, cultivate what's missing. So, you know, say your example, a state of kind of disconnection or lack of intimacy. Cultivate what's missing. You know, maybe I use the sense doors to do that. You know, maybe I use more body movement. Cultivate what's missing. What does it mean actually to really just feel the body? Feel the, you know, cultivate that quality of intimacy, of closeness. It says if it still arises, then take your attention elsewhere. Don't dwell in it. Take your attention to the, uh, an object that's outside of the sphere. This, this particular pattern. So there still arises. <laughs> um, I don't know how to phrase, I'm not going to phrase this particularly. Look at the payoff of this pattern. You know, what am, what's actually getting, what am I getting out of this? You know, what is the attachment? What's the enchantment? What's the, you know, even when it's unconscious, you know, sometimes our enchantment with difficult patterns, um, you know, in terms of identity or in terms of a reason not to engage, is if it still arises, um, uh, press your tongue against the roof of your mouth and don't go there. It's a habit. And it's, it's, it's kind of recognizing that sometimes there is no more insight to be squeezed out, you know. We kind of like, we know this, you know, we know how this works inwardly, anxiety or despair. We know, we, you know, we've looked at it, we've examined it, we know it's historical beginnings, you know. We know everything about it. There's no more to be known, you know. The well is dry, in terms of insight, you know, and sometimes that enchantment, I'll just go around there one more time, maybe that magical piece of insight's going to arise. It's done. It's done. It's, it's like there's no more insight. It's a habit. So, so but it basically suggests in those moments, put your tongue against the roof of your mouth quite firmly and just don't go there. Break the habit. That's a kind of a, and, and that's not a, a, a version, it's a kind of a commitment to well-being, I see that. It, it's a commitment to well-being. I, I know what going there actually does in terms of deepening that, that habit pattern. I, I'm quite satisfied. I, I know everything about this there is to know, you know. And now I see by going there, I'm actually just kind of fostering unease inwardly. And, and, and so it's just, just press your tongue, gaze with your mouth, don't go. That's an interesting one. Interesting one. Because sometimes it's like you, we really get a sense of how this is so, you know. I, I mean, and sometimes, you know, you think even like a judgmental pattern. Well, we know everything about it. You know, we know how our mom talked to us when we were kids, you know. We know our failures at school, you know. We know how our disappointments, you know. We know everything about it. And, you know, we're still there kind of blaming ourselves over and over again. And we can really feel how that pattern has almost kind of got embedded into our sense of self, you know. And so sometimes it arises out, just not going there. Or <laughs> that tongue against my roof of my mouth. Um, he said, if it still arises, ask for help. But, but clearly, you know, that there is this quality of engagement, not on the basis of aversion, not on the basis of agitation, but actually recognizing that the kind of intractability, the stubbornness of actually this very limited number of patterns most of us actually find ourselves living with. You know, it's not a big portfolio. 
You know, and and that's why the Buddha actually brought it down to even a smaller portfolio, because pretty much every pattern that we experience inwardly, uh, you know, is in some some shade of greed, hatred, and delusion in there. You know, with its many offshoots and and um, you know its many ways of manifesting. Um, but it's not like a long list, and that's the good news. But what we actually see is our reactions to that short list are what keeps things spinning. You know, I don't, I don't want the craving. I don't want the aversion part. You know, so it actually keeps it spinning. So you know, there's there's that balance of how how does mindfulness engage without it becoming another mechanism of avoidance or aversion or agitation. But it certainly does engage. And mindfulness is certainly, most definitely, not the end of the story. It's a kind of springboard. Springboard. Yeah. Yeah, Lindsay. So removal of distracting thoughts, but it's it, it's in the middle length sayings. Um, but the list is expanded in another sutta, which is the two kinds of thought. So it's kind of a combination of those two, two discourses, very much paraphrased. Can you say something about um, working with the observing mind? Whether you sort of see this sort of pattern of having an observing mind that observes and it's keeping the observing mind in the right state that's important. I'm not quite sure how you're using the phrase observing mind. Well, you think you need to be quite careful about reifying that one. Yes. Um, yeah, you know, because, it, it, I mean, clearly, you know, it's part of psychological mental capacity to be able to be attentive. You know, it, this is different than mindfulness. I mean, and, and it's always, because when the Buddha speaks about mindfulness, he's always speaking about wise mindfulness, you know, and, which, and wise mindfulness is always informed by wise view. I so, you know, the wise view in, in, you know, if we would put it very traditionally, 
I mean, a wise view has its foundations clearly in integrity and in ethics, in metta. But wise view is basically an exploration of... Um, it's aligning our view with the way things actually are. Now, when I hear that phrase sometimes, the way things actually are, it sounds kind of ideological, you know, and you sort of think, what does that mean, the way things actually are? But the way, uh, the, the way in which the Buddha used this is, is uh, you know, I think of wise view is when we are no longer having an argument with the unarguable. That's basically wise view. So from, from the traditional context, wise view is, is based, uh, has certain understandings within it. Um, it means that we no longer see or seek for the permanent in the impermanent. It means that we understand uh, dukkha and its causes. It means that we no longer see or seek for a permanent abiding self in which, in what is actually process. So wise view is, is a kind of a, an accumulation of understandings. So wise view is actually, again, it's not a view, it is engaged. So wise view is always relational. You know, because every moment of our day, there is some kind of view operating. We're seeing the moment, we see life, we see ourselves through a particular lens. Now, sometimes that lens is the mental state of the moment, and sometimes that lens is a more abiding view, a view of self, a view of life, a view of the world. So a lot of what we... And and we always know when there's kind of unwise view operating well, we become a little bit more sensitized to the signals of unwise view operating. Because when unwise view is operating, there's always going to be some kind of agitation. There's going to be some, some degree of, of, of struggle, of argument. You know, shouldn't be like this, should be like this. I shouldn't be like that. You know, I don't want this. I don't, you know, I want something else. So whenever unwise view is operating, the basic signal is that there's going to be some kind of argument, some kind of agitation going on. Now, we'll know many of moments of unwise view operating in the day, and, and we may know many moments of wise view operating during the day, when there's simply no argument with what is actually present and the capacity to see it clearly as it actually is. So you know, it's, very impo- it's absolutely impossible to separate wise mindfulness from wise understanding. They they can't be separated. So hopefully in the practice, what we're actually developing, what you might be referring to as the observing mind, is actually the capacity to see the moment through the lens of wise understanding and wise mindfulness. But this this is a very dynamic thing, you know. This is a moment to moment cultivation. So, and, and and of course, it's always relational, in in relational to unwise view. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.